Another episode of Hero Paranormal Podcast. That's right, the hyper anomalous esoteric research organization podcast brought to you by me, Ryan, the original outlaw of the airwaves, broadcasting just south of Area 51 at the base of La Madre Mountain. And we got a heck of an episode today, quite the amazing guest. Before we get to that, a little bit of shameless self promotion. If you haven't been to heroparanormal.com, please slide on by. There's a big old button there at the beginning. Click it, hit it, destroy it. That is your key to the inner circle. That's right. For the cost of a cup of coffee a month, you are there. You get all of the content uh, that patrons and my supporter family get. So yeah, get in and uh, choose to win. And on today's amazing show, we have a beyond amazing guest, Mr. Ralph Blumenthal, Pulitzer Prize winning reporter for the New York Times from 1964 to 2009. This best-selling book is a stunner. The Believer, Alien Encounters, Hard Science, and the Passion of John Mack. A book that reads like a Hollywood movie. I could not put it down. I'm not even kidding. I not only cried reading the book, but also smiled at the amazing skill and perseverance of the magnificent man, John Mack. The skill with which this book is written puts it in a class all its own, taking 16 years to research, write, and publish. No corners were cut. Worthy of every award the field has to offer, I can honestly say This book is a work of art everyone interested in the subject matter should consider having on their shelves. Well, let's get to it. I am chomping at the bit. I'm like a kid in a candy store waiting to talk to Ralph Blumenthal. So with no further ado, what an honor, Mr. Ralph Blumenthal. Welcome to the Hero Paranormal Podcast, my man. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I am doing amazingly. And speaking of amazing, what a treasure trove of information the believer is. It is absolutely amazing. And as a question, uh, I'm sure many listeners are interested in, who was John Mack for those who don't know? And what intrigued you to write about John Mack for listeners who are not familiar with his remarkable life? John Mack was an esteemed member of Harvard Medical School, a member of the psychiatry faculty. Uh, He had won a Pulitzer Prize for the psychobiography of Lawrence of Arabia, T.E. Lawrence, um, he had an eminent career um, bringing mental health care to the Harvard uh, area, to uh, Cambridge. Uh, he had been very active in social causes, protesting nuclear weapons, um, in world affairs. He uh, was very focused on Middle East peace. He had met with Yasser Arafat. So he had a very distinguished career uh, in, in earthbound causes. Um, 
through a series of steps that I discuss in my book, the believer, he got interested in um, spiritual matters, particularly the whole mystery of alien abduction. And um, he pursued that. He was a notable researcher in that field because of his, his background. Um, and uh, he really actually, you know, refocused uh, or remade the field, uh, which had, you know, been looked into by other, some other researchers, which we can discuss. Um, now, how I got into it, I picked up one of his books. I was a correspondent in Texas for the New York Times. I was not particularly, uh, you know, interested in ufology. I read science fiction as a, as a kid, but it was not one of my particular interests. Um, and I picked up one of his books, Passport to the Cosmos. It was his second book. And I was intrigued by the idea of a Harvard psychiatrist interested in alien abduction. I thought it would make a good story. Um, I had no idea how famous he already was then. He'd been in the New York Times. He'd been on Oprah. Um, he, uh, he had, you know, quite a reputation in the field as a researcher, none of which I knew. Uh, so I thought I would call him up and, and maybe interview him. And I picked up the paper a few days later, and lo and behold, he'd been run over in London uh, by a drunk driver and killed. Um, and uh, that's really what got me focused on, you know, going back over his career and uh, uh, getting access to his archives, to his family, and, um, and writing his story. Such an amazing story. And a very kind, genius, successful human being. For those who explained the abduction experience as just nightmares, did Mac destroy this thinking? I think he did. Um, first of all, he, among his many claims to fame, uh, was a book he had written on nightmares, <laughs> nightmares and human conflict. Uh, so he was an expert in nightmares. And for people later who came along and said, "You don't understand. These people are just having nightmares. They're dreaming it all up. These, you know, encounters with alien beings." Um, he was able, I think, quite successfully to put that to rest, saying, "Look, I know what nightmares are." And these are not nightmares. For one thing, they didn't always happen at night. Uh, they happened in the daytime. They happened while people were driving their cars, uh, walking around in the woods, uh, all kinds of places. In one case, a woman uh, driving a snowmobile. So uh, they, w they didn't always happen when people were uh, asleep or near sleep in their bedrooms. Wow. Yes, this is true. Another very, like in my opinion, one of the best recounts to date of the Betty and Barney Hill incident was, I, th I thought I knew a lot about this, but yet Betty and Barney Hill, there was a mention of a dog, something I'm sure many didn't know, and other aspects nobody has touched upon, really. Well, I, I made it a point of going back to the whole history of uh, alien encounters in order to inform myself. And uh, I should say, Brian, that I think one of the problems with the so-called skeptics uh, is that they do not do the, their homework. Uh, they don't know the literature. They don't know the research that's been done. So they can't uh, really debunk it. Um, they, they haven't taken the time to study uh, all the, um, I don't want to say evidence, but yes, evidence. Uh, it's anecdotal. It's fragmentary. It's flawed. But uh, there are many, many uh, accounts, and there's a whole literature of information that you sort of have to master before you can come to grips with it, and, and certainly before you can write it all off as delusion or mental illness or all the other things they 
they come up with. So, um, um, so one of so one of the things I did was study the Betty and Bonnie Hill case. It happened in 1961, but it didn't come to light till uh, two years later uh, because Betty and Bonnie Hill kept it quiet. What happened to them? They saw a flying disc, as they said, as they drove through the White Mountains. Uh, their dog was cowering in the car. This uh, this this uh, saucer followed them. Eventually, uh, the car you know uh, stopped. Uh, which is common in these stories. Um, they got out and they were um, captured, as he put it, by alien beings who put them into a spacecraft with all kinds of different experiments, some of which they remembered consciously, but mostly was retrieved through hypnotic regression later because their memories were fogged. But it's, it's a very detailed account that they each gave. It absolutely dumbfounded the, the psychiatrist who um, interviewed them, a very well-known World War II combat psychiatrist named Benjamin Simon, not John Mack, because this was way before John Mack got interested, and he basically threw up his hands. He couldn't explain it. So I did feel it was important to trace the history of uh, that which is really the, 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 the most famous, most you know, well-publicized abduction encounter before I get into John Mack's story. Yes. And I, I was intrigued, very intrigued, and something that you have in common. Um, he, John Mack won a Pulitzer Prize on his book on Lawrence of Arabia. And that came with many ins and outs that kind of reflected on his own life. Yeah, he, um, um, he went to see, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, the movie, uh, when we all did of that age, uh, 1963, I think it came out. And uh, he was intrigued by Lawrence. You know, we all liked it as a movie, but he saw something else. He was a, a professional psychiatrist, and he saw uh, something intriguing in Lawrence's frame of mind. Now, the movie distorted a lot of things, and, uh, and John Mack was uh, interested in getting to the heart of it. So he, he went to um, England. He uh, found the family of Lawrence. who he, Lawrence had died in a uh, motorcycle accident. Um, in the 30s, but uh, his, his relatives were still around, and, and Mac interviewed them, and he put this whole story together, and he saw some parallels between himself and, and Lawrence, and maybe this was a little, you know, highfalutin, but uh, Lawrence was a man of action who had a very um, uh, deep inner life, and Mac was always fascinated by the interplay between inner life and, and action. Uh, which he, he was also, you know, known for. He, he was brilliant intellectually, but he was also interested in mixing it up uh, in all these other, um, you know, uh, sometimes controversial areas. So he, he saw Lawrence as a kind of a role model, and he did, he said this himself, he kind of patterned himself after Lawrence, the way Lawrence did things, a very smart man, um, who the movie, uh, notwithstanding, was not a warmonger and was not a sadist. Um, he didn't revel in, in, in warfare and battle and, and murder. Um, he was kind of turned off by it. But um, Mac found that very interesting, that it, Lawrence was actually a shy character who found himself in this pivotal role in history, the Arab revolt against the Turks, and, you know, uh, mobilized the, the tribesmen for their freedom. So, so Mac took, you know, Lawrence as a kind of a role model as a brave um, 
uh, you know, leader who was not afraid to plunge into unfamiliar territory, which is what he did. Yes, and getting into that unfamiliar territory and UFOs, I think it's important to make a distinction, especially nowadays, between UFOs and aliens, which you've done. But these objects are real, aren't they? And in at least as they're being seen and unidentified. Yeah, that's a very, very important point, Ryan. I'm really glad you brought it up because um, it's a big mistake to conflate uh, UFOs and aliens, even though uh, John Max saw a relationship. Uh, which there may be or may not be. I mean, we don't know. It's a mystery. But anyway, um, w- uh, when, you, when we at the New York Times were reporting on UFOs, we were very cl- careful to stick to what we knew, which was that these are unidentified objects uh, with um, amazing aerodynamic capability, uh, flying at hypersonic speeds, 13,000 miles an hour or more, able to function not only in the skies, but underwater, apparently, um, and uh, appear and disappear at will. So there are many mysterious aspects uh, to them. All we know now, and it's a lot more than we knew a few years ago, is that they seem to be uh, physically real. They have a physicality. They're not uh, archetypes. They're not, you know, mental images. They're not hallucinations. Uh, They have been caught on radar. They've been caught on thermal imaging devices of the Navy. They've been eyeballed by pilots. So uh, one thing we, we can say pretty much for sure is that they, they exist, which is a lot more than we were able to say a few years ago. Now, who's behind them? Where do they come from? Why are they here? Those are all questions that um, nobody can answer at this point. And the, the smart people are not speculating about that. They're taking you know, one step at a time and, um, uh, and, you know, and not jumped in conclusions. So now what John Mack did discover was that there was an association between UFOs and alien experiences. Uh, people would see UFOs before they became aware of aliens materializing in their bedrooms or, you know, by their cars or whatever. But that, again, is, 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 is basically anecdotal and not uh, verifiable like the existence of, of UFOs is. That has been established. Yes, yes, it has. And I'm glad you said anecdotal because there's a lot of evidence that is not anecdotal. And you broke a story in December of 2017 about a Pentagon unit, ATIP, and uh, through the New York Times with Leslie Keene, and you also did a story on pilots and materials, a lot of information that's classified. Can we go into a little bit of that? I know you've probably gone into it a lot and are tired of it, but it sure is amazing. Yeah, um, a lot of information is classified. We did not really access that information. We we could not, uh, and we did not, Um, but we really um, had no, no access to that kind of information. Now, for, for whatever reason, ATIP, the Advanced Aero, Aerospace Threat Identification Program that we um, divulged in the New York Times in December 2017, that was not classified. It was not a classified program. And the Navy videos that we put out with that story that showed uh, images of strange objects that the Navy uh, you know, caught on, on gun cameras um, those were not classified videos. I don't, we, we wouldn't have, 
put out classified videos, or at least not without consulting at a very high level at the New York Times. But we, we never needed to do that because this information was not classified. And as I say, that's an entirely different situation when you're dealing with that, and you could go to jail mm-hmm. for you know disclosing you know uh, uh, classified information. So we were very careful to stay away from that and to only report what is in the public domain, what we were able to get uh, all on the record, uh, talking to um, high-level officials who were identified in the stories. We didn't, you know, use any background, you know, uh, uh, information or unidentified sources, which weakens the story. I'm very proud of that. So, um, so you know, but there is classified information out there. We just haven't, uh, haven't been able to get it. You bet. And you really started something amazing how all of this has opened up to the mainstream media. Um, Something that I I just have to touch on for a moment from the book, and I hope I'm not giving too much, is the stories from all the kids that seem like they just can't be faked. Mac delves so deeply into many of these stories, including the Ariel School. Can we go a bit into the children? Yeah, that's a very good point because... Uh, Mac listed all these reasons why he thought the uh, abduction stories were not fake, um, why he eventually believed that something had happened to these people uh, on some level of reality. It wasn't clear that it was, it was happening in our conventional reality because you don't see it happening on the street in front of you, but it was happening somehow, somewhere, uh, in, in some way that Mac considered real. And one of the reasons he came to that conclusion was that little kids as, as young as two years old who could barely speak uh, said things like, you know, little man, take me up in the sky, I fly in the sky. So these kids, uh, you know, were not reciting material from books they had read or movies they had seen. Um, in that sense, they were, they were good witnesses. Now, when um, uh, it happened in around 1990. Uh, five, I believe, that um, a craft was seen landing at, or was reported to have landed at a school outside the capital of Zimbabwe, Harare, at a school, uh, a country school, um, a day school, and 60 children at recess saw this, uh, saw colored balls in the sky, and then they saw a craft landing, and they saw two beings come out. Uh, and the children described these beings, and they looked at each other, the beings and the children, and the kids got a really good look at these uh, two two beings. Um, uh, and then Mac went to Zimbabwe to talk to these kids, and they drew pictures, and they were interviewed on camera, and their accounts were very convincing. Again, as children, um, it, it's hard to imagine that they all got together and agreed to you know, conspire to tell a fabricated story. It was not a case of mass hysteria because the kids were very thoughtful and uh, basically saw the same things uh, the way they described it and described it, you know, as children would do, very matter-of-factly and very, very straightforward. So I went through those descriptions from Mac's uh, videotapes and audio tapes, and I found them very convincing. It's probably one of the best documented um, you know, cases of a UFO landing and alien interactions that has come to light. Um, as I said, because these kids were good witnesses and because their, their uh, accounts of it afterwards were, were taped. Now, the actual 
event itself was not taped. Uh, it was not caught on tape or camera or photograph, uh, which is kind of typical for these uh, events because it, for some reason they don't lend themselves to documentation. That's part of the phenomenon. You could speculate on all kinds of reasons. Are the aliens so smart that they defy, you know, electronic reproduction? Um, uh, something always seems to go wrong. Um, you know, they asked Mac about that once. Uh, how come all the teachers were away when, when, when this thing landed and the, the two beings came out? Uh, did the aliens plan it that way? And Mac said, you know, I'm not very good on alien psychology. Uh, um, he couldn't give an answer what was going through the aliens' minds. But it's a fact that there were no teachers, or at least I think subsequently um, it came to light that maybe one of, at least one teacher was present. That was not available, that information originally, but it's come out since. But anyway, teachers were not um, widely present uh, to confirm, um, you know, this strange event. Right which makes it almost stranger. And as an investigator and researcher, Mac seemed to look under every rock, so to speak. And there are a lot of incidents kind of sticking with the children of hybrid children, which kind of delves into something I'd like to ask. Why is it that there are so many intense, I guess, emphasis on sexual reproduction experiments when it comes to these UFOs? Well, a lot of people, one of the things that Mac found quite convincing was the consistency of the stories. Um, so um, a, a lot of different people, and in this case, because of the subject matter, women, uh, told similar stories that they were, uh, they, you know, encountered or became aware of a UFO. They were taken by uh, beings to uh, a ship. Um, they were put on a, a table that was generally described the same way, some kind of an examining table, and the light in the craft was described kind of the same way, a brilliant, brilliant white light, no source of the light evident. And then um, these women uh, told, told the story that they had uh, uh, an instrument put inside them and their eggs were removed, and men had sperm taken uh, as, they, as they recounted, and then Later, they would be abducted again, and they were able to see or were presented with what they were told were their hybrid children. Then um, they told vivid accounts of seeing test tubes of little, you know, fetus-type beings and, and actually grown-up children, uh, older, that looked sort of humanoid, not quite human, uh, hybrid children. Now, these are the stories that, that many women and men told. Um, so Mac, um, you know, found that kind of interesting. Now, there were also so many different little details that differed from case to case, so it didn't seem that they were reading off some script and they were all parroting the same story. So it was the consistency of the stories uh, plus the details that were hard to imagine, let alone make up because they were so bizarre and, and wild. But the... Uh, people had very vivid um, memories or accounts of what these instruments looked like and the medical exams, the pseudo-medical exams that they were subjected to, um, kind of things that, again, you know, you just wonder how anybody could make that up in that level of detail. So, but the fact remains that nobody has a picture of these hybrid beings. 
Um, none of them have, have come around to be tested. There are people walking around who say they think they, they believe they're hybrids, but um, no, um, uh, you know, DNA tests or blood tests has confirmed that they are different from anybody else. Um, so uh, it's that's part of the mystery. Yes, and it's so mysterious. It's very interesting, very interesting. I found the instances of the strange smells fascinating. Even Whitley Strieber tells a story about this. Can we delve a little bit into the strange smells? Yeah, that's an interesting aspect that people um, who, uh, you know, recall consciously and under hypnotic regression uh, being on the, the spacecraft uh, or craft of these beings um, had particular sensory memories. Um, they, they, many of them recalled a kind of a clammy um, uh, feel to the air. Um, just an interesting detail. And um, the light, as I said, was kind of silvery and coming from all over, not any particular light source. So Whitley Strieber, told, uh, who has one of the most amazing um, stories because it's not necessarily an abduction story. It is that, but it's also uh, more than that. And many of these stories are not strictly abduction stories. They're encounter stories that don't, that they deal with more than just being, you know, taken onto a craft, let's say. Anyway, Whitley Strieber, who wrote Communion, which is one of the first books recounting uh, an abduction experience, um, uh, tells in his book of a time when he was uh, taken and uh, he was screaming because he was so terrified and um, uh, he heard a voice because these beings supposedly communicate by telepathy. That's how pe you know, people say, well, how come they speak English? Well, they don't really speak English, but the way people remember it, the thoughts just pop into their head. It's kind of a telepathic communication. So Whitley Strieber got the communication in his head what can we do to make you stop screaming? So he realized he'd been screaming, and what, what popped into his head was a very strange thing. Again, one of the details that you wouldn't necessarily make up if you were making up a story. It's just so bizarre. He said, uh, you could let me smell you. And with that, he said, the being, uh, you know, extended his or her arm. I, you know, I think it was a female being he had the sense, and he smelled the the being skin, and he said it smelled like cardboard, you know, a sort of a musty smell, but quite distinctive. And it came back to him years later when he was trying to reconstruct the experience, so it was like a sense memory. Um, anyway, um, so uh, smell does figure into these uh, stories, and in a very interesting way. Yeah, I find that just such an interesting little tidbit of information. And Max seemed to delve into so many of these little interesting things and challenge the dominant paradigm as if on a mission. He was ostracized, criticized, made fun of. I mean, yet he succeeded where it seemed many failed. And I, what would you account for that? Well, I think he had the intellectual firepower to uh, contradict the skeptics. A lot of... Uh, uh, People were intimidated when, you know, uh, scientists came forward and said this is not possible, physicists and uh, other psychiatrists. And, of course, everybody agrees, including Mac, of course it's not possible by our understanding of what, what our reality is. You know, I have a quote in the beginning of my book, the believer, 
uh, from Sir William Crookes, a sci British scientist of the 1870s, who was sent to uh, debunk um, a seance where uh, musical instruments were playing themselves and people were, um, you know, spirits of the dead were materializing and people were levitating. So he went to the seance, William Crookes, and um, he, he, he witnessed these things and he could not explain them. And he came back later and he said famously, and as I said, I have a quote in my book, uh, I never said it was possible. I only said it was true. <laughs> um, and I think that's a very good formulation that everyone agrees that these stories that people are telling uh, and that Mac was hearing were not, you know, uh, real or true or possible in any sense of our understanding of reality. And yet um, he, he went through all the possible explanations to try to debunk them, Mac himself, and could not explain, he could not come up with a hypothesis that explained all these different things. Um, so that included um, the consistency of the stories, the fact that small children uh, were telling these stories, that people from all walks of life were telling similar stories, um, that uh, in some cases they had marks on their bodies afterwards that they didn't remember having beforehand, in one case, a quadriplegic who could not inflict any injuries on himself because he couldn't move. Um, uh, in some cases, the foliage was disturbed outside in the, in the field where people saw a UFO landing. They later found disturbance to the trees and the grass. So, um, uh, you know, all these things made Mac think that uh, there is fragmentary evidence and there's no better explanation it wasn't sleep paralysis because it wasn't always happening during sleep and nighttime. Uh, it wasn't a nightmare because he knew what nightmares were. And these people said, you know, described them as happening in, in real life. And the people in recounting them later, recounting these stories, were so worked up. What psychiatrists called affect, the way they present themselves in recounting something, that he concluded they weren't making it up. They weren't fabricating uh, they were really uh, repeating a, a traumatic experience. They were crying and weeping and cursing. It was as if it was happening to them all over again. So he said, these people are not, you know, dissembling. They're not, you know, trying to trick me. So he put all this stuff together and he said, I have no better explanation for these um, experiences than what the people themselves said they were. So somehow in some, you know, in some level of reality, these things had happened. So that's that's what convinced him. And I'm really glad that you said levels of reality because there's a lot of these levels of reality that Mac delved into. And or there was a quote, some, something like, there's a possibility no greater question for people is life after death. Leslie Keene, you worked with her. What was it like to work with her? And I also want to point out, if possible, this life after death phenomenon and how Mac delved into that. Okay. Um, anyway, yes, I, Leslie Kane, she pronounces it Kane. Um, I worked with her closely because she was the one who heard about the, uh, this Pentagon unit, ATIP, uh, in, the, in the first place and found out that uh, the Pentagon, despite its many decades of denials after, after Blue Book, um, was actually continuing to investigate uh, UFO 
sightings and and um, encounters with Navy ships and jets. So she'd heard about uh, this in Washington and came back, and we, together we brought it to the New York Times, and that's how the story, we broke the story that this unit um, existed and that Lou Elizondo, the head of it, was resigning because he wasn't getting enough support from the, from the Defense Department. Um, so anyway, so two different things. So Leslie um, was also working on um, uh, a book about survival of consciousness, life after death, but that really had nothing to do with John Mack's interest. Uh, John Mack, um, and this goes back 25 years, um, was interested in um, survival of consciousness after he, uh, he was, you know, researched and was exploring uh, alien abduction. He got into other spiritual areas. Um, Things that were hard to explain, and, and anomalous, uh, you know, situations. Uh, um, the Grail legend. He was very interested in um, the Bigfoot legend. Crop circles. He went to England to investigate the energy that people associated with crop circles, which um, seemed to have been made by you know alien intelligence. Uh, although there were some hoaxes as well. Anyway, so he branched out to look at other things. And one of the things he, he was very interested in was survival of consciousness because um, he became friendly with a young woman who was very brilliant named Elizabeth Targ, uh, who had all kinds of um, psychic gifts and was, and was a psychiatrist herself, very brilliant, and was studying the effect of distant healing on AIDS patients. And she found in one famous experiment that uh, AIDS patients who were prayed over or prayed for um, did better than those who were not prayed for. So, um, but as it happened, she um, uh, developed the same kind of cancer she was studying, brain cancer, and died from it. And after she died, um, um, people around her said that her spirit or she manifested in some ways to convince them that she was still uh, in touch with them and with this world. And Mac was very intrigued by that. And he decided he was gonna do a book on that um, as his, his final project after alien abduction. And he was killed, he was run over in London before he could uh, get far with that book. But he was very interested in that. And he was you know, sort of curious himself what would happen after, to him after death. So he told people things like, well, maybe I can do better work from the other side. And they said, oh, John, don't, don't talk like that, you know. Um, and at the very end of my book, um, I talk about uh, John Mack materializing. So, so, you know, people around him said uh, on a number of occasions. Um, so, um, you know, I don't give it the same uh, prominence in the book as other things because I think that, it, again, it's very anecdotal. There's no way to prove it, um, but um, th these are stories people tell, and they tell them some detail. And again, there's a somewhat of a consistency to these stories, and not more. You know, more than one person told a similar story of seeing John Mack's spirit coming back. So uh, that was the last thing he was working on before he died. Wow. Is so fascinating. And I found it fascinating that Mac once said, we can all go at any time. And I, I could walk out onto the street and be hit by a car. Going, yeah. 
Going into something slightly different, but yet along the UFO phenomenon and the government, a lot of people and folks just don't trust the government, especially with the stuff coming out lately. But when the government is honestly saying, we don't know what these things are, and uh, what are we to make, to make of this? Well, the government has a long history of being duplicitous. There's no doubt about that. Um, uh, in, the, in the 1950s, there was an actual CIA campaign to discredit uh, ufologists, uh, people who followed, you know, U uh, UFOs, uh, to paint them as communist uh, threats, you know, uh, subversives. Um, because they were challenging the, um, you know, the official order, and they, uh, there were a lot of reasons. But the government was um, either did not want this news out, didn't want, uh, they wanted to control the narrative. They were afraid that, uh, you know, what would, how would the public react if they were, if they learned that there was something in the sky that the government couldn't control or explain. So for for many reasons, and some of which were national security because the government was afraid that whatever technology this was up there um, might fall into the hands of our enemies on Earth, the Russians, the Chinese. Um, so for, for a lot of reasons, the government was very wary of this information and uh, didn't want it to come out. So they did disinformation. They planted false stories. There's a whole history of it. Um, the government did some other things that were pretty heinous, like the MK Ultra experiments, where they gave uh, LSD to unwitting, uh, you know, victims uh, to, to test things. So th the government earned its reputation for being untrustworthy in this field and and uh, and some other fields. Um, so it's it's not a mystery that you know people distrusted the uh, the you know. The, the actions of the government in this area. Um, plus, you know, the government was very quick to debunk all these sightings and people who, who had served in the military and knew what planes and the planet Venus looked like uh, did not want to be told that you are seeing a weather balloon or you are seeing the planet Venus. Uh, and these people knew too much uh, to know that what they had seen could not be explained away as easily as the government was insisting. So, so now why is the government being more forthcoming? Well, I think we at the New York Times had a role in changing the paradigm. I think we made it um, uh, safe for mainstream publications to uh, consider the evidence of, of uh, UFOs, uh, you know, being physically present. Um, I think uh, that people in the government uh, and, and, and in Congress um, uh, took a greater interest and wanted to see more of this information come out. I don't think it's a plot to, you know, to, um, uh, it's not being manipulated, this news, because we got the news very, through, through a result of hard digging, nobody fed it to us. Um, I mean, you, you know, you can come up with all kinds of conspiracy theories because you can't prove a negative, but um, I have found no evidence that, you know, we were manipulated into coming out with a story because now's the time the government wanted it out. I think it just accumulated, evidence accumulated, and we were able to break it by people who, came, who happened to be in a good position to provide the information at the right time. So um, I think uh, the, uh, 
the needle has moved, you know, the weight of evidence has shifted, uh, the government now in a big step, the Navy has said it wants sailors and pilots to come forward with information, which they never did before, they would tell them not to, it would hurt their careers, so there's been a lot of progress made, um, it's step by step, um, so we don't know where it's it's going to end up, and I don't know what you know what what this UAP report, task force report, is going to say. If it's going to even come out on time next month, um, so there are a lot of questions. But um, uh, you know, I I think I the, the government is becoming uh, more forthcoming because of these series of steps I just outlined. Yes, absolutely. And along the lines of conspiracy, and a part of the book that actually made me cry was that about John Mack being run over by a drunk driver in London. He had a very tragic death, and many believe this was a conspiracy, and he was taken out. Can you clarify what actually occurred? Yeah. Now, is it, you know, in, in the course of my research, I got access to the um, London police reports, the witness reports, uh, the story of the guy who ran him down. Um, and I debunked, in my view anyway, successfully debunked uh, any suggestion that he was assassinated, that this was a premeditated attack. Uh, the man who ran him over was a uh, charity worker uh, who had spent all day um, uh, uh, you know, making red poppies for a World War I uh, you know, charity drive. Every year, I mean, it's a veterans' charity drive long after World War One, but it started in World War One, uh, the Red Poppy movement. So he uh, was at a you know veterans' uh, office with other vets, you know, making these red poppies to distribute to uh, generate money for the charity, and they were serving uh, shandy, which is uh, beer with um, uh, fruit juice, and he had too much of it, and he was driving back late at night. And John Mack stepped out of the underground, the, the subway. He did what many Americans left. And this guy was coming along, and Mack just stepped out in front of him, and that was it. Um, and they interviewed him at length, uh, the driver, and I have those reports. And one of the conspiracy theories was that another man named John Mack was um, run over at the same time, showing that, you know, John Max were being targeted and they got the wrong one. Uh, I think that's a myth. I, perhaps somebody named John Mack was run down somewhere. You know, you can't disprove a, a negative. But I found absolutely no um, confirmation that he was targeted in any way. There were a lot of people angry at him. There were a lot of people who regarded him as a hero. That's unquestionable. But... Um, uh, he was not targeted that I could find. Now, there was one interesting thing that did happen that I put in my book. Um, one of his fellow psychiatrists, a young protege, happened to be in um, St. Peter Petersburg, Russia, at, uh, just around the time Mac was in London, and uh, this uh, protege, uh, Wesley Boyd, uh, was driving from the airport with his wife uh, to a, a conference in, in St. Petersburg, and he looked, and Boyd looked out the window of the cab, and he saw a guy being run over, pedestrian, by another car. And it was just about the time John Mack was run over in um, in London. So that was the kind of synchronicity that popped up again and again in my book. That is very strange, um, and um, but.
but it, it had nothing to do with a plot against John Mack. Right. And thank you for clarifying that. You had access, and you mentioned this, to a lot of files. And among those files, you had access to personal files. How in the world did John Mack live apparently two lives, a very professional life, yet a very kind of, by the mainstream, considered an out there life, researching with the best of the best at the time. How was this so accepted by friends, family, and colleagues? Well, he was a human being, and he had all the foibles of a human being. Um, as I point out in my book, um, he, he lost his mother at age eight and a half months. His mother died, his birth mother died of uh, appendicitis. Uh, it was a very traumatic event for a young child to suddenly lose his mother. Of course, he had no understanding of why she was taken away like that. Pen penicillin <coughs> had been invented at that time just then, around 1930 but was not in, in common use, so they couldn't save her. So uh, he, he was deeply traumatized, and he spent his whole life sort of missing his mother. Now, his father uh, pretty quickly remarried um, another professor. His father was a professor. He remarried a woman who was a professor who was very eminent in her own right and who uh, had, a, had a daughter from her previous marriage. Her, she was a widow. Her husband had committed suicide during the Great Depression. Anyway, um, so Mac was conflicted in mother issues, let's say, and he spent a lot of time searching for a missing female presence in his life. Now, that took the form of some romances in addition to his marriage to Sally, a wonderful woman who kept faith with him throughout his life and who he uh, d deeply loved and uh, throughout, uh, although he strayed uh, from you know, uh, faithfulness in his marriage. Um, so he did have some, uh, some love affairs, which I go into in the book. Um, uh, he was a flesh and blood person. He had his weaknesses. He was naive. Uh, he, he said things to newspaper people that he shouldn't have said because, uh, you have to be very careful how you deal with the press. And he was, he was naive about that. He got hoaxed once by a woman who presented herself as a, um, uh, abductee and was really trying to, uh, um, you know, um, uh, pull the wool over his eyes and, you know, t told a story that uh, wasn't, was only partly true at least, or maybe uh, uh, partly false but partly true. She was a real abductee, Mac thought, but she told a fantastic story that he, he swallowed, and then she went to Time magazine to, to bring him down for reasons of her own, and I tell that story in the book. Um, and if and if he were more uh, careful, perhaps he wouldn't have fallen for that. So he was, um, you know, I uh, I don't uh, paint him as a uh, um, you know uh, you know I don't know what to say like a a more than human figure. He he was a towering intellect. He was courageous. He was brilliant. And I do call him a hero at the end. But he had his flaws as a human being, like the Greek heroes did. <laughs> um, and one of these was his, uh, um, you know, his weakness for, for, for um, um, you know, for fame. Also, I mean, he uh, he was very uh, happy with the attention he was getting. Um, uh, perhaps that. Uh, you know, he let down his guard because of that. 
etc. He, you know, he had delusions of him of, of the ability he had to control the scenario, which he, he wasn't always able to do. So anyway, um, and I, I could see that from his from his uh, his journals that I had access to and his um, uh, therapy sessions, which he taped and which I got access to. Like every psychiatrist, he had to, uh, you know, go through a lot of self-analysis, and he taped some of those sessions, a bunch of them, and I got access to I talked to his therapist afterwards. Um, so I, I think I had a pretty good window into his, into his psyche. Yeah, I think so. Amazing. An interesting thing is that he did, people did try to take advantage of him, and he was naive. Harvard tried to prove things against Mac, and... He proved that he wasn't doing anything wrong. Can we go into that a little bit? I found that so fascinating. Yeah, well, um, he, he rubbed Harvard the wrong way uh, because, first of all, he had written a best-selling book and, and made some money. <laughs> and he, uh, had, he rose above his academic colleagues in that sense. And academia being what it is, it excited some jealousies, no doubt. Uh, a, number, a number of his experiencer. Uh, patients or subjects, they were both, um, left other psychiatric, um, um, you know, treatment uh, to, to go with him. So he, he um, alienated some colleagues who saw, you know, their people leaving him from, from Mac. So he had a lot of, he dealt with some professional jealousy. And Harvard was embarrassed by the high profile that uh, Mac uh, had, had achieved on, on, you know, in a very controversial field. He'd been on Oprah, been on a lot of uh, television show, other television shows. He'd been in magazines. And um, so, um, and there were people at Harvard said, you know, he's giving us a bad, uh, you know, reputation. Where Harvard has a long and storied history. Actually, Harvard... Uh, was no stranger to uh, um, unconventional research. I mean, William James, the father of psychology, um, was talking about seances and uh, uh, mystical experiences at Harvard 100 years ago. And Harvard's very proud of William James. So, you know, it's nothing that Harvard hadn't dealt with before. But Mac sort of rubbed them the wrong way, and he was a bit arrogant, and um, he didn't inform Harvard until it was a little bit too late. Of you know, what he was doing, although it was no secret, he was actually speaking at Harvard to Harvard audiences. So it wasn't like he was tiptoeing around them. But for all the reasons that you'd expect an institution like Harvard, um, they uh, took it amiss a and they said they needed to investigate his methods. So uh, Mac was again naive. He went into these to this investigating committee, uh, thinking he was just going to be talking to colleagues. Um, um, and, uh, of course, uh, he realized later that he needed professional representation. It was not um, just a chat among colleagues. He was being subject to a, a quasi-disciplinary procedure, although they insisted it was not disciplinary, but essentially uh, it, it could have resulted in him being disciplined. Anyway, he got himself two crackerjack lawyers, um, and uh, Danny, Danny Sheehan, who had investigated the Iran-Contra arms deal under the Reagan administration, and he represented the Karen Silkwood family after her uh, plutonium poisoning uh, disclosures, and um, he investigated the Ku Klux Klan. And the other lawyer Mac got was uh, Eric McLeish, who had broken the priest abuse scandal in Boston. So two really hotshot lawyers 
who realized that um, they were going to hold Harvard's feet to the fire and make Harvard prove that Mac had done something wrong, which he really hadn't, and eventually uh, succeeded in getting, you know, there were no charges against him. Uh, Harvard just said, please be a little less enthusiastic, and Mac said, okay, and that was the end of it. But it was an ordeal for, you know, more than a year. It cost Mac a ton of money in legal fees, um, it, no, no end of anxiety and anguish. Um, so uh, it was a very sad episode. Yes. And I should say, uh, by the way, Ryan, that Harvard never put out a, a report, a public report on, on this inquiry. It was a secret thing. I call it an inquisition because that was a word that they used when they tried to tell Mac what it wasn't. And he was a good psychiatrist. So he said, why are they using a word to say what it isn't? Um, so it was a kind of an inquisition into his methods and, and thoughts, processes. Um, but they never put out a, a, a public report on it. I put it all together in my book, I think, for the first time mm -hmm. through uh, legal, max, you know, legal memoranda, through uh, emails, uh, interviews with Danny Sheehan and Eric McLeish. So I tell the, the whole story of the Harvard Inquisition in my book. Yes, and you do a really good job. Um, very interestingly, Bud Hopkins and John Mack seem to be quite the dynamic. Can we discuss the relationship between the two? Yeah, yes and no. Um, John, uh, John Mack learned of alien abduction from Bud Hopkins. Uh, Bud Hopkins was an artist who had seen a UFO in the 60s and uh, made himself an uh, abduction researcher by studying hypnosis and interviewing people who'd had these experiences and um, became really one of the first experts. And he wrote a book called Missing Time, which for the first time, this is before John Mack got into it, for the first time identified the phenomenon of people having their memories fogged somehow um, by their experiences so they couldn't remember what had happened and they would turn up hours later. If they were driving someplace, they would lose track of you know, what had happened and later in hypnotic regression, they would, you know, recapture memories of being stopped by a spacecraft and aliens, you know, uh, abducting them and things like that. But um, they only became aware of it initially by the fact that they turned up where they were going hours late and they didn't know what happened in the meantime. So uh, Hopkins had written a book about this, uh, which was very pioneering and another um, a colleague, uh, David Jacobs, a Temple University history professor, uh, also studied hypnosis along with uh, Hopkins, and they both collected their own circle of experiencers or abductees to, to study. Um, so John Mack, through a contact he had made at Esalen, uh, the, the, you know, that psychic think tank on the West Coast, so got an introduction to Hopkins, and at first he thought he wouldn't contact him because he thought the whole thing was silly and he couldn't imagine uh, anything uh, you know, uh, real about people claiming uh, abduction experiences, but he found himself in New York uh, at the beginning of 1990 and uh, sort of um, one of those events that really changes your life for reasons that are kind of strange. He called Hopkins after all, and Hopkins uh, showed him letters he had gotten from people uh, recounting these abduction experiences um, Mac was intrigued. He 
you know, uh, uh, collected his own circle of experiencers and started studying them. So that's how he got into it. So, you know, Bud Hopkins was the first one. But they eventually um, took different paths because Bud Hopkins was much more attuned to the idea that these things were happening in, in re recognizable reality. These were real experiences these people were undergoing, um, actual physical abductions, and uh, that the aliens were uh, bent on, you know, breeding a hybrid race, and there was a reproductive purpose, um, uh, you know, in these abductions, and it was all really traumatic. And Mac uh, increasingly felt that there was something more to it, that it wasn't happening in an identifiable reality, that um, Hopkins and Jacobs were being too literal, and that there was something else going on. And anyway, the people were coming forward with, uh, trans, you know, uh, transformative uh, experiences that they felt um, they had to take better care of the earth and that they felt the love of the cosmos and the, the love of the supreme being so that there was something not just traumatic but also uplifting about the whole experience. So that was Mac's take on it. Hopkins had a different take. They sort of had a parting of the ways, but then they reconciled towards the end of Mac's life, and they realized they were both kind of doing similar research. They had different uh, emphasis, uh, emphases, but they were uh, overlapping in many ways. So they, they kind of made up. Uh, um, and that, so that's the story of Hopkins and Mac. Such So neat. And another really neat thing, and something that stood out to me, is how your book delved into and, and recounted some cultural instances when just fascinating. When Mac met the Dalai Lama, where the Dalai Lama's accounts of villagers had similar stories of small elves abducting people. Yeah, uh, again, this is something that I think comes out the first time in my book, <coughs> that Mac, um, the Dalai Lama being in exile from China, living in India, is very sensitive to, um, uh, you know, how he's covered in the media and was not necessarily eager to be presented as someone interested in alien abduction. But um, a filmmaker who um, was uh, doing a film on, uh, you know, Buddhists and the Dalai Lama um, got an invitation to go back and bring a group of experts, including Mac, to the Dalai Lama to discuss alien abduction. So in 1992, Mac went and uh, kept a transcript of the proceedings, a week's meetings with the Dalai Lama and these other people that came from the States and talked about the discussions. And it turned out the Dalai Lama, being a spiritual figure, was very attuned to the idea of uh, presences that could not be explained in conventional reality, interacting with humans. He saw it not necessarily as abductions, but, you know, small elves or spiritual beings and different levels of uh, consciousness um, so their, their discussions back and forth, which I, you know, relate in my book, uh, are really fascinating and, you know, it won't be found anywhere else. Um, and, uh, I think the Dalai Lama learned something from Mac and vice versa, Mac from the Dalai Lama. And he, he had an affinity of being able to meet all of these, I mean, the people he met, it just read like a Hollywood movie. And uh, this book is just a work of art, Mr. Blumenthal, uh, Ralph. And 
in in the words of Shirley MacLaine to Mac, everything is divine, everything is sacred, brilliant book and a must read for everyone. I thank you for coming on, Mr. Blumenthal. Any last uh, words that you'd like to uh, tell our listeners? Well, thank you. Um, you know, as I say at the end of the book that um, I, I regard Mac as a, as a hero because he, he broke boundaries. Um, he, uh, he went on this quest uh, that would, took courage. Uh, even though there were a lot of reasons why he couldn't, uh, wouldn't, and shouldn't have risked his career to do it. Um, and, um, um, you know, the, the, the whole story of uh, the, the accounts of alien abduction sort of places humans at a disadvantage with uh, alien beings because they uh, have superior technology and they can do things that we can't and they they treat us like, you know, laboratory animals, according to the accounts of people testing them and um, traumatizing them. And yet, uh, you know, here we have a guy like Mac who is studying them. He's studying the aliens and, uh, and, and, uh, and standing up to them, in a sense, in terms of, you know, gathering information and trying to explain what's going on in this very murky area. So I think uh, at the end, I, I sort of tap the human species on the, on the back, or clap them on the back and say, you know, hey, we're pretty great, we humans. We, we can't do all the things the aliens can supposedly do, but hey, we're studying them. And, uh, and we're pretty courageous to do that. So um, I think it's uh, maybe a little bit of good news in what some people have taken as a lot of bad news in terms of us being at a military disadvantage or you know, being traumatized by these contacts, which to this day, nobody knows what they are, you know, what, what dimension they're happening in. Um, you know, it's very frightening stuff. And yet, uh, here's a case of uh, a, a heroic human who, uh, who took it on as a, as a mission and a quest. So uh, that's sort of how I end up. Well, reflectively, you're a hero yourself for your contribution. And I thank you so much for coming on. Terrific, Ryan. Man, oh man. Well, there you have it, guys. Ralph Blumenthal, a hero for sure. And I'm telling you, this book is one worth getting. Definitely check it out. Until next time, keep your eyes to the skies, feet on the ground, but don't forget to take a look around. Time machine, third eye feeling like it need visine. Blast off, blast off, blast off, blast off. Come blast off in my time machine, third eye feeling like it need visine. Blast off, blast off, blast off.